Support for KQED Podcasts comes from the Exploratorium. Don't miss Extraordinary, a new exhibition of incredible art made from everyday stuff, like shoes, light bulbs, and Lego pieces. Opening June 13th at Pier 15. Tickets at exploratorium.edu extra. Take your Wi-Fi further with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity. With fast speeds and reliable coverage, home just got even sweeter with the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. We're getting pushed and shoved, having rocks and bottles thrown at us. I was walking through Union Square, and a gentleman, just as I was walking by him, said, You brought the flu? Go back to China. So my own wife was running and someone just walked her way on a trail and coughed in her face. This week on The California Report magazine. Since the start of the pandemic, Asian Americans around the state have faced racist attacks. In recent weeks, that violence has intensified. The Bay Area is seeing a surge in anti-Asian attacks against the elderly. A 91-year-old man was violently shoved to the ground in Oakland's Chinatown. An 84-year-old man was killed in San Francisco last month. Communities have held vigils to speak out against the violence. Scapegoating groups, using blanket statements, racial profiling, those things need to be stopped also because they are wrong and because they make us less safe. And call for solidarity between communities of color. Everyone in my family has a story about being a victim to to the issues that we're talking about today. And at the same time, all of my friends also have stories of being subjected to racial violence as black and brown people. The point for us is to not compare our stories of oppression, but rather come together to think about our shared ideas and dreams and aspirations for our future. We've seen surges in racism against Asian Americans during times of epidemic, during times of war, like Japanese-American incarceration. The anti-Asian violence we're seeing today evokes that painful time nearly 80 years ago for Japanese-Americans. I'm Sasha Koka, and this week we're marking the anniversary of President Roosevelt's executive order, which forced about 120,000 people into incarceration camps. As part of a collaboration with StoryCorps, We're going to listen in on conversations that reflect on that time and on its legacy across generations. We're focusing on California's Central Valley, which during World War II was home to a thriving Japanese-American community. We're going to start with 95-year-old Gary Sudama and 88-year-old Yutaka Yamamoto, who both live in Fresno. They're lifelong friends, and they sat down together before the pandemic to talk about their childhoods during the war and how they adjusted to life afterward. Gary starts us off. We're very close friends from way back. We've known each other since 1951. My dad came over from Hiroshima when he was 16 years old. So he came into the city of Stockton and opened up a grocery store. My dad was getting ready to transfer everything over to my second oldest brother, Ben. And that's when the war broke out. So we were given a notice of one week to clean up our business. So my dad went around Stockton 
to find out some grocer who would buy the stock that was in the store. He found a store man that would buy it on 60 cents on the dollar. My dad had to agree to it. And then he waited and waited for them to come pick it up. Day before we had to leave, he came and gave my dad 15 cents on a dollar. And my dad had no way to get out of it, so he took it. 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. The thing I remember most was that from December 7th on, every day the teacher that I had was a Caucasian lady. She would turn the radio on. The National Broadcasting Company brings you the latest news from the Far Eastern War Zone and from its experts on... The news naturally was about the war and the Japanese. At that time, nobody said we were Japanese. They used a nickname, Jap. And that was one of the slangs that I, to this day, I, I've never forgotten. It's uh, very painful to hear people call you a Jap. Uh, I remember that was a uh, big shock. I remember going to school, I think I was in the fourth grade then, and I told my teacher, who was a Caucasian, I won't be coming to school from tomorrow. And her only reply was, oh, you know, not, no goodbyes or nothing. I never forgot that incident because my home life also took a drastic change. My parents ran a uh, laundry business in Chinatown. After the uh, notices uh, were put up around the neighborhood stating that uh, all people of uh, Japanese interest m must move by a certain date, and, and it was about... Seven days. Seven days? Seven days. And... Uh, the government would allow us only what we can carry into the camps. So we couldn't take our furnitures, automobiles, radios, if it contained a shortwave ban. For some reason, my uh, dad and my mother had sense enough to, uh, one of the first thing they did was uh, bought five dinner sets made out of metal. One fan, electric fan, one hot pan, and uh, five sleeping bags. They had sense enough to buy those items to take into camp because we could only carry, bring what we can carry. A lot of the public was not aware of the fact that we were put into camps. I hope nothing like that happens again to any uh, nationality. Yeah. We went to Stockton Assembly Center, and we were there for about six months. And then we were supposed to go to Roar, Arkansas. My oldest brother had a TB, and he was in a sanitarium. So the government told us, any family has a sibling with TB. If we go to Arizona, where it's dry climate, they will send our sibling there. Well, we went to Arizona and our brothers weren't sent there. So that's the second time the government and I didn't get along. The war ended. Uh, my parents uh, received uh, a letter from 
from their parents saying that uh, uh, don't come back to Japan because uh, there's no place to raise a family. So my dad decided to come back to Fresno. We couldn't uh, walk around freely and feel comfortable. Never miss somebody would either drive by or walk by and they would look at us and say, you dirty Jap. Nothing would uh, rile me up more than to hear a person call me a Jap, yeah. And I was drafted into the Korean War. And then when my time came, after two years of service, they shipped me home. And after I came home to Alamosa, Colorado, I packed up and left the family to come to Fresno. My second oldest brother, Ben, was living. I lived with them, and I started to go to Fresno State. That's when I met Yutaka. I was working for the gas station, and you walked by the gas station quite often. But I finally met him, and we've been good friends. Yeah, 70 odd years. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I remember is Ronald Reagan's time, when we got the reparation, the, the American government uh, allocated $20,000 to each person that was put into the camp. Each person that was alive, mm -hmm. which wasn't enough. That interview was part of a collaboration between StoryCorps and the Yonsei Memory Project, which is an intergenerational effort to capture the voices of Japanese Americans in the Central Valley. Nikiko Masamoto is the co-founder of that project. Her family is well-known throughout California for their delicious peaches. She helps run their organic family farm in Del Rey, which is just south of Fresno. Nikiko is also a queer activist, a writer, a performer, and she joins us now to talk about the effort to preserve intergenerational storytelling in the Japanese-American community. Hi there, Nikiko. Hi, Sasha. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I want to play some of the incredible story core conversations that you've collected through this project. And I want to start with your own family who were participants in this project, um, hearing from your parents, Marcy and Mas Masumoto. And we should say Mas uh, is well known to a lot of listeners of the California Report. He's an author in his own right, and he's contributed essays to our show in the past. So Nikiko, let's listen in on your parents talking about how they got engaged. I write, uh, and I write for the Fresno Bee, so I took out one of those Valentine Day's ads, and I had written in it, uh, Dear Marcy, what are you doing for the rest of your life? And I remember when you opened and read it. Do you remember? I remember that. I was in an apartment. I had just fairly recently moved to Fresno. I remember you said, why are we looking at the, the ads for Valentine's Day? And when it came to yours, I remember you read it and you turned to me and you said, is this what I think it means? <laughs> That's exactly it. Was, I was in total disbelief. I was like, what? You put, took an ad out of the paper? You were Buddhist. I was Christian. Um, and the more I learned and the more I realized we had so much more in common than we had differences. Also, though, you were able to understand, grasp the differences 
and ex- not only accept them. Here, here's a new way I'm describing it. It's not just about acceptance. It's about a sense of belonging. And I think that's why we ended up having a great marriage in our, in still married, and on Valentine's Day, we're still in love. <laughs> <laughs> they are so cute, Nikiko. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Hearing this makes me smile, and it really makes me feel, uh, it makes me feel so whole. And what they're talking about is creating a life together based in wholeness. Both of them grew up on family farms. Both of them wanted to live on a family farm together, to have a family. And it's just so beautiful. And and, uh, what I love most about my parents is growing up with them, our story of being a mixed race family was always talked about with reverence and joy and also honesty. And we, we always got to talk about being fully ourselves. And I, I just love that. You know, another thing that really struck me in the conversation between your parents, Nikiko, is that they actually talked about the racism your white grandparents expressed. And I think, you know, for a lot of us who are mixed with one white parent, that's something that often doesn't get talked about. Definitely, especially my mom. It has taken her a while to recognize fully the extent to which her parents were racist towards us. And I think it's because it's really painful for her because she loves us so fiercely. So to acknowledge that her parents didn't fully love us is like, it's it's really hard for her to reckon with. But I so appreciate her getting to this point where she can name that. Later on in the conversation between my parents, my mom talks a little bit and reflects on about her father, um, who is German-American, and his experiences that formed his identity. His formative years were during World War II, um, and he carried some very, very strong biases against Japanese, in particular, um, stemming from the war. And the fact that you were Japanese-American, he could not separate that. On the outside, after about 30 years, on the outside, he seemed to be much more accepting. I'm not sure if actually he ever really was on the inside. I think he represented a lot of America, especially during, you know, the war, who, you know, these people were aliens and foreigners and suddenly were the enemy based on how you looked. And that which led up to... uh, internment in Japanese-American uh, uh, relocation during World War II when my parents, my grandparents, I was born after that, but they were rounded up and treated like the enemy and put in the prison camps. You know, it's real funny. Uh, uh, growing up, my parents called that time they were in camp. And I know you heard that initially and think, camp, what's camp like? And mm-hmm. it was their euphemism for saying they were in prison thrown in prison in the Arizona desert behind barbed wire for four to five years. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when you first heard that story and what you felt? I I remember you telling me that story, and I could not believe it. I I admit I knew nothing about Japanese-American internment or incarceration um, until you told me about that. Here we were in graduate school before I ever... Uh, heard about that. And um, I don't think my folks, my dad in particular, saw the wrong in that at all. 
Right. Here's the wild thing, Mars, that I think your understanding of that story, that legacy, part of our family history and part of me, uh, was when you could grasp that, understand it, it was love. Oh, well, of course. <laughs> Well, you grew up on your grandparents' farm, your Japanese grandparents' farm, with your folks, and you were really close to your bachan, Carol, who's your dad's mom, and you taped some conversations with her to try to preserve some of her memories, too. She was completely deaf, so there's pauses, and and as I'm writing questions to her, um, and then I just pulled out my phone and just started recording. What do you want me and my generation to remember about camp and after camp? It was a bad thing. Our, my brother got wounded and dad and Jishan brother died. But uh, I mean, here we were in camp and then they died for our country. <laughs> so she's talking there about how her brothers went and fought in the war for the U.S., right, while... The rest of your family was in an incarceration camp. When I listen to that, I can't help but be really moved because um, that conversation was actually the last conversation I had with her. Mm. She ended up passing away um, just a couple weeks after that. And so as I get to listen to the gift of her voice and all of her little idioms and the way she spoke, um, it both brings me great joy and also really awe. I mean, she's talking about this really traumatic time in her life, in our family's life, and she just can name the losses of what happened as fact. And I hear in that also kind of a pride in survival. And Nikiko, I should say that I knew your grandmother because she was lunch partners with my grandmother-in-law. They had lunch every day because they lived together at the same Japanese-American assisted living facility in Fresno. And I feel really lucky and honored that you invited me and my family to participate in this project as well. And that I had the opportunity to interview Yuriko Unokaku, my grandmother-in-law, who is now 97 years old. I'm so glad you came down, Sasha. So glad. We did this interview on the Day of Remembrance last year in 2020, just before lockdown, just before the pandemic really broke out here in the U.S. And I haven't been able to see her since. And it's been really hard knowing that she's one of those isolated seniors, you know, in a nursing home. But I feel so grateful that I have this tape of the StoryCorps interview. And in fact, one of my favorite moments in talking to her was when she burst out into song. She started singing a song in Japanese that she used to sing to my kids when they were babies. It says how beautiful the Japanese black is. Now, Yuriko's story of World War II is a little different um, because she was actually born in Oakland, but her family went back to Tokyo just before the war. So when the U.S. was bombing Tokyo, she had to stop speaking English and basically hide her roots as an American. Just hid that we were, you know, had to do anything to do with America because we were an enemy 
born in the United States, and they thought that, you know, we were an enemy. The FBI, you know, came to check on us. The Japanese FBI? Yes, the Japanese FBI. And at the same time that she was trying to hide her Americanness in Tokyo, her family back here in California, incarcerated in the camps all around the country, were trying to prove their Americanness. And in fact, you know, years later, her cousin, Edison Uno, who's a big civil rights leader in the Bay Area, helped spearhead the efforts to get reparations for Japanese Americans. That texture, those those differences of lived experience, I think that is part of the gift of the specificity of storytelling and us getting to listen to those stories. We tend to think of Japanese American history as one way, but really there was a multiplicity of experiences during World War II, and specifically the experiences of Kibei, I think are often left out. So Kibei are Japanese Americans who were born in the United States, but who went back to Japan at some point in their childhood. So Yuriko's story reminds me of another story that we collected also about a Kibe experience during World War II. So this is a story between a mother and daughter. Uh, the mother, Harumi Sasaki, is 88 years old. She was Kibe, born in California but experienced World War II in Japan. And she's telling this story to her daughter, Nadine Takeuchi, about experiencing the bombing of Hiroshima. Apparently, Harumi and her family survived the bombing by hiding in a cave in the mountains. So what happened right before they dropped the bomb? Do you remember? Did you hear airplanes? Oh, Did yes. You... Oh, everybody, you know, scared and, you know, hiding. But uh, a little later, uh, we can't hear the noise or nothing. So we thought, oh, okay now. And then, uh, okay, we say okay. And then bomb come out. Boom. You heard a big, big yeah. boom. Um, boom. It's, it's so incredible in that moment of exchange, right? You can hear in Harumi's voice, like the poignancy of that memory. It's, it's still powerful with her. One of the treasures of the StoryCorps recording experience is we got to invite people from the Japanese American community to really tell their stories across many different variables of what it means to be Japanese American. And one of those really special stories um, was actually also from the Takeuchi family. And this is Kayla Takeuchi's story. Kayla is 27 when she recorded this story. Um, and Kayla, she represents a story of, of disability and the Japanese American community. Kayla was born on the autism spectrum and has been nonverbal. Um, but in her interview with her parents, um, she tells about a really particular moment of discovery. And so in order to do this interview, um, you're going to hear her father, Norm, asking questions. And Kayla is meticulously, diligently typing her answers on an iPad. And then Nadine Takeuchi, her mom, is going to read her um, answers aloud. You were born with autism. You have had um, difficult times during your life being a non-speaking person with autism. And 
Was there one defining moment in your life that you would like to share? I was non-speaking for the first 16 years of my life. It was so incredibly frustrating to not be able to communicate my most basic needs and wants. But that all changed on April 3rd, 2007. I remember that I typed for three hours that day. But most of all, I remember feeling I had been freed from a prison of silence. I felt like my whole world was about to change. As I know Kayla, Kayla from that moment was able to express and explore her curiosity and what she wanted to do with her life. And now today she is a student at Fresno State. I just want to tell non-speakers to never give up on your dreams. Find people who will advocate for you until you are able to do it for yourself. It has been a difficult journey, but it has been worth it. Nikiko, tell us what's ahead for the Yonsei Memory Project. We have so many dreams, <laughs> so many dreams. Yeah, we are going to continue to do work around memory keeping in our community. In the pandemic times, we were able to host several different things, um, and one of them was a virtual gathering that we called an Ancestor Power Hour. And we invited people to do an ancestral scavenger hunt in their own homes. And so they found objects that connected with them with ancestors. People brought photos, recipes, keepsakes like furoshiki that they had inherited from a grandparent. We're definitely going to continue to honor our ancestors and connect across generations. That, that will never stop. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about connecting memory and storytelling to disrupting violence. I mean, we've just seen this huge wave of anti-Asian violence here in California just in the last few weeks. When I stop and think like, okay, why storytelling? Why does storytelling matter? To me, the connection is storytelling implores us to listen deeply. And I think when we're able to develop our skills of listening deeply, we can bear witness to each other's pain. And then in turn, we can no longer become vectors of violence. Because I think once someone's story touches your heart, it transforms you in a way that you can no longer hate them. And so that, that for me is my wish that we can continue to do those brave acts of deep listening. Right, and also bear witness to a generation that's frankly not gonna be with us for much longer. You're absolutely right, you're right. And there's nothing like the moment now to ask a question and listen. It's a beautiful experience. Nikiko, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Sasha. Anytime. I just love getting to listen to our community stories. Nikiko Masamoto is co-founder of the Yonsei Memory Project. We've got a link at our website, californiareport.org. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleon. Amanda Font is our director, and Brendan Willard is our engineer. 
Hector Arsate is our intern, and our team also includes Ariella Markowitz, Julie Chang, Michelle Wiley, and Tara Seiler. Special thanks this week to Danielle Anderson at StoryCorps and to KVPR in Fresno. I'm Sasha Coca. You can follow me on Twitter at KQED Sasha Coca. And hey, thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Take your Wi-Fi further with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity. With fast speeds and reliable coverage, home just got even sweeter with the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, KQED listeners. I'm right now as podcast host, Pendarvis Harshaw, dropping a line to invite you to a summer evening of live contemporary jazz at the KQED headquarters in San Francisco. Thursday, June 20th at 7 p.m. We've got a stacked lineup of dope musicians, including vocalist Jamie Z, saxophonist Lydia Rodriguez, and harpist Destiny Muhammad. And Newsflash is the closing event for our podcast. We've had a great run, so help us celebrate the end of this chapter. Get tickets to Liner Notes Live at kqed.org events.